this is not philosophy. This is not things that we need to learn as principles. This is very, very practical. So we're sitting in meditation. We're on our cushion. We're breathing. And we locate a limit. Say restlessness. We want to get up and run away. Okay, here, right, I see you. I see you, Mara. <laughs> I see you. Here, here you are. Okay, now I'm going to dive into that experience. I'm going to deeply listen to what it is. And I can discover there what's the source of it, how I am with it, and where I'm stuck with it. What's the pattern that's giving rise to the restlessness? That's my attachment. When I see it, I soften it. I'm kind to it. I'm compassionate to it. I'm fully aware of it. And I'm aware of its dynamic nature as something that's moving and changing. That point, the attachment is released or dissolved. And what opens up instead of it is an open space, is a sense of freedom. Stephen Folder was born in London in 1946. He studied at the University of Oxford and the National Institute of Medical Research where he was awarded his PhD in molecular biology. Stephen has published 14 books in the field of complementary and herbal medicine. He began practicing in 1976 as a student of Esenguenka and Sayama. In 1981, he moved to Israel and founded Tovana, the Israel Insight Society, in 1995, where he serves as senior teacher. Stephen has been involved in the Middle East peace process as founder of People to People and later of the Middle Way organization. His latest book, What's Beyond Mindfulness, Waking Up to This Precious Life, was published in January of 2019. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Kwanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Kwanam School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit kwanamzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code Sit, Breathe, Bow, all one word. Stephen, I was listening to an interview with you and just started laughing when I heard about you sitting on the banks of the Ghats in Varanasi. And you'd been hired to teach. I'm assuming biology or some sort of laboratory skill set. And the students were trying to find you because you weren't at the university. You were down at the GATS and, and they kept having to come down to the GATS to find you. And I was wondering what, what, that was, what was happening for you in the sense of uh, you'd done all of this training, received a PhD, and found yourself not wanting to be in the lab, but sitting with the sadhu on the yes, banks uh, of the river. It was uh, a magical time. I thank the government of the UK 
for sending me out to India to be a lecturer in Varanasi and uh, giving me that opportunity. The truth is I have always from a child uh, been really interested in what is reality and how it's built and what is this thing, this body-mind that is conventionally called Stephen. And from a very early age, I had no idea. And uh, it's been with me, you know, through the 60s uh, period of the psychedelic world and so on. And so I knew that somewhere in India had an answer for me or a secret for me. And so I was, there was a magnet, the wild, crazy, spiritual uh, explorations in the Indian culture, the sadhus and the wild guys were really, really attractive to me. And so in a way, I, I, uh, I, I was, went to India for that rather than teaching biochemistry, but I taught biochemistry because that was my profession. Uh, it gave me a great, a great stimulus. I think what was really powerful for me in India was the sense that deep spirituality could be out there in the street. There wasn't a, a kind of a gap and a struggle between spirituality and culture. And, and that was a huge inspiration. And then I did my first uh, Buddhist retreat uh, with Goenka, and, and that set me on a kind of a, a, a track in uh, my spiritual practice. Now, do you think that the question that you had in terms of, you know, who am I or what is this, do you think that was also what inspired the study of molecular biology? Or was that just a, a parallel interest of, uh, of curiosity? Uh, yes, it was more of a parallel interest. It was a profession. And actually, when I went to India, I learned the subtlety of an Indian word or Sanskrit word called sattva. And sattva means purity, it means harmony, it means balance, it means nonviolence, it means depth. Um, and I realized that uh, that was really, really important and it's missing in the West. So when I came back to the West, I shifted and used my science to support more subtle areas of healing and health, such as uh, uh, Chinese medicine and so on. So molecular biology was a basic profession, but I did then begin to use it for something akin to the holistic vision that's been inspiring me all my life. And I, I only ask because just, it's not like you studied English, you know, it's, you went and studied something that really is like, what is this life? What is the foundation of this life? But maybe, maybe not. <laughs> no, it's, it, <laughs> you know, it's technical. I, the medium is the message. And uh, so science is pretty technical. And molecular biology doesn't really get to ask deep questions about reality. It's uh, more like a more and more and more information on processes that happen inside the human body. So it's very materialistic. It doesn't really go anywhere near that level. But by the way, uh, you may be interested to know that in the last couple of years, I've been doing some research again, but this time as a subject. And I've had, in deep meditation, I've been exploring the issues of the boundary, which is the boundary of our body and the boundary of the known, and the limitless, the unbounded, the boundarylessness. 
and have been studied both in the laboratory and also through a deep questioning and uh, of the first person subjective experience of myself in states of the limitless consciousness uh and we've published two scientific major scientific papers on my experience as a meditator so now i'm the guinea pig i'm not the researcher <laughs> it's been turned on its head yeah. and i'm i've just <laughs> trained 30 uh advanced meditators in israel who are going to who are going through the same process repeating what we did with a larger number of people and it's kind of i think really interesting groundbreaking research now do you do you think that there is a a shift that's happening in science i say this because you know i just finished a book called uh, braiding sweetgrass uh, which is by uh, robin wall kimmerer and she's a indigenous woman here in the United States, but also a, a scientist, biologist, and then, you know, ended up writing this book that's like, oh, she loves the science world, but actually she has to go this, to this spiritual place so that she can blend what it is that she's actually living with. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, science is changing. I've been uh, pushing for it for the last 30, 40 years and writing about it and, and many articles, including, for example, that the scientist is the, he should be researching himself, not researching so-called matter out there, objective things out in the world. Um, and science is changing. They would never, there wouldn't, no chance that 20 years ago uh, they would have published a paper of one person's experience, namely myself, on a subject such as the dissolving of self and the experience of the limitless, of beyond, of, of something infinite, uh, experienced by, a, by a, a single human being. That's radical. Uh, so, uh, for me, science definitely has moved, but I think we also ought to limit the uh, power of science and the importance of science. It's not something we need to worship anymore. I think we need to go to, uh, to other places. Mm. So when you were on the banks of Varanasi, uh, you heard about uh, this guy named Goenka, S.N. Goenka, who now is, you know, he's all over the, the world. And you went and did a 10-day a retreat with him. You did one with him, and then you moved on to someone uh, named Sayama. And I'm just wondering what that process was and, and uh, you know, what that first retreat was like for you. Well, the first retreat was uh, a challenge. Um it's intense. It's uh, 13 hours sitting a day. Uh, and I really felt that, in a way, I had enough of the indulgence of the 60s. I wanted to get to the hardcore. <laughs> and so I felt that this, this was hardcore. Um, on reflection, I'm very, very happy I did so many retreats with uh, Goenka and, and Sayama in the UK uh, because there's something very clear, dedicated, um, and simple about that practice, and it, and it takes you very far. However, after doing something like 15 retreats with uh, Sayama and Goenka and, and uh, that lineage, uh, I really felt that it wasn't giving enough credence and enough respect and enough interest in the vastness of the uh, Buddhist teaching. The, the Buddha gave so much vastness of, 
of wisdom and development of inner space and ways of touching our inner space, our consciousness. And uh, I felt that it was rather narrow. So I moved out of there into a much broader uh, di broader dimensions of Dharma practice. And even, for example, the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, if you look at the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta is the classic sutta on foundations of mindfulness. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is about how to use mindfulness to explore states of liberation, of suffering, of the senses, of... Um, of investigation, of exploration, uh, of love, of calmness. It, it goes way out beyond a kind of limited range, which I, uh, I learned in, uh, in the Goenka tradition. So I was grateful for it, but I feel very, very, uh, it's very important to move on to the breadth of the teaching of the Dharma. And sort of running down that line a little bit, there was another thing that you said that was actually about Krishnamurti and sort of Advaita where you talked about, uh, you know, what you'd learned from the sort of Krishnamurti tradition, but that there was something really important about starting with the suffering of life that was important and, and sort of grounding in that this is what we're, you know, you know where are you standing today yeah, yeah. that I found really moving I loved when I did the Goenka retreat, it was, it was very practical, but I could see, you know, now that I'm in a sort of a different tradition that the suffering is really <laughs> addressed a lot more. Yes. Yes. Um, first of all, suffering and pain doesn't need to be the dominant experience, but it cannot mm. be ignored. The, uh, the Buddha right. didn't say uh, you have to suffer the Buddha didn't say life is suffering. The Buddha said you cannot avoid suffering. It will be there at some point in a, a, the experience of a lived being, whether you're a human being or an ant. So suffering to me is a teacher. And so we need to kind of have our compass ready to point out where is our suffering because that place is the place of teaching. Uh, for example, in meditation, if we feel uh, stress in the body, tension in the body, or wanting to escape, or tiredness or restlessness, um, the hindrances, in other words, these are not problems that need to stop our meditation. These are messages coming from a subtle level of suffering, suffering at the level, should we say, of the mind and the body, that tell us, here is where you need to look. Here, mm. here is the limit. Suffering shows us where we are attached. The, the whole of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha is very, very practical. We pick out suffering because it shows us our attachment. When we see our attachment through understanding suffering and where we're stuck, then we have a direct road to non-attachment. And the, that's the Third Noble Truth, which is the truth of the space that opens up when we let go of attachment. So just to go back over the... Uh, Dharma, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So one of the um, aspects of the fourth, fourth foundation of mindfulness is uh, the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. It's there in the Satipatthana Sutta. And this is not philosophy. 
This is not things that we need to learn as principles. This is very, very practical. So we're sitting in meditation, we're on our cushion, we're breathing, and we locate a limit, say restlessness. We want to get up and run away. Okay, here, right, I see you. I see you, Mara. <laughs> I see you. Mm. Here, here you are. Okay, now I'm going to dive into that experience. I'm going to deeply listen to what it is, and I can discover there what's the source of it, how I am with it, and where I'm stuck with it. What's the pattern that's giving rise to the restlessness? That's my attachment. When I see it, I soften it, I'm kind to it, I'm compassionate to it, I'm fully aware of it, and I'm aware of its dynamic nature as something that's moving and changing. That point, the attachment is released or dissolved, and what opens up instead of it is an open space, is more spaciousness, is a sense of freedom, and that's the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is, yeah, I'm on the path. This is the way it works. The Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. So the whole thing can happen in one uh, uh, half a minute of our sitting experience. We can go through the four noble truths. And if we read the Satipatthana Sutta as a guide, it's exactly the, what the, 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 the fourth foundation is telling us or is guiding us. And there's a lot more in, in it, of course. And I loved how you said it's not philosophy, but this sort of lived experience. You uh, live in Israel. You moved there in 1981. And you've started these, uh, a couple of organizations to work on the peace process. Uh, organizations guided by Dharma practice. And I'm wondering how you take, you know, what you just said in terms of uh, how we can experience suffering and then bring it right through the lived life of Israelis and Palestinians uh, so that they can experience liberation, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, well, of course, on the level of the street and on the level of uh, working with people who haven't any uh, Dharma practice, we're not talking about liberation in the big sense, but we're talking about ways, wise ways of using Dharma methods, principles, and understandings to reduce uh, daily life suffering, especially in a situation which is so big and so intractable and so much pain as the conflict in the Middle East, which has been going a hundred years and nobody's got an answer to it until today. So what we did, we did many different kinds of operations or, or practices or methods. Um, some, a very powerful, uh, a powerful uh, form that we used um, was weekend retreats with Palestinians and Israelis, each time bringing 15, 20 Israelis to the Palestinian areas and working with 15 or 20 Palestinians. And these are not practitioners. These could be farmers or teachers or academics or traders, um, women and men. And we actually used firstly the uh, tool or the method of uh, kindness, metta. Metta was running all the way through the weekend. So it starts right at the beginning. Kindness to each other, kindness to the other person that we meet, kindness and softness to make everybody relaxed and feel safe instead of fear 
and worry what's going to happen and maybe we're not safe to be in the Palestinian uh, areas or the Palestinians not safe with Israelis. So Meta is one movement. The second one is um, uh, deep listening. And deep listening is a key practical method of mindfulness, basically. Deep listening is giving space to the other. Shantideva said, to put yourself in the shoes of the other is a sacred act. So we were putting ourselves in the shoes of the other as a form of deeply listening to the other. What's the other feeling? What is a Palestinian feeling? What is his life? What is his or her suffering? What is the Israeli who is talking? What are their suffering? What is their life? So this kind of deep listening, in a way, in one weekend, totally shifted the view. The view of the other, the other didn't exist anymore. He or her was a human being suffering like us, together, looking at the same situation, struggling into the same situation and being together. So it was very a very powerful practice. We used also compassion, uh, we used calmness, and we used equanimity. I can tell you a small story that one uh, day, it usually mm. was really, really calm. But one day, the Palestinians and the Israelis started to shout at each other like crazy. You did this, you did that, you're a terrorist, you're a soldier. And they started to scream and shout at each other. And I felt I'd lost it. I just couldn't hold it as a facilitator. And I said to myself, well, there's nothing I can do. I'll sit here quietly in the chair right in the middle of all the shouting and wait till it's over. After five minutes, it all settled down. Everyone sort of got on again, <laughs> okay. And I turned to my Palestinian co-facilitator and said to her, uh, Rauda, I'm sorry, I blew it. She said, no, no, you didn't. You don't realize that your equanimity settled everything in five minutes. They could have killed each other but they all settled down. <laughs> and I, didn't, I myself didn't realize that the equanimity was working. So equanimity is a very, very powerful practice as well. The Buddha said, when you can't talk to someone because they're so full of emotion or they're so caught up in strong views, then don't talk to them, but never underestimate the power of equanimity. So that's another... Uh, that's another um, tool that we mm. used. And I have to say, by the way, in the parenthesis, I'm doing a tour in the United States in May, and we're going to mention this at the end of the, uh, of the podcast, but equanimity is one of the main issues I'm going to be talking about on my tour through uh, Dharma centers uh, in the East and the West Coast in, in this coming May, because it's so important in a struggling world where we wake up in the morning with anxiety, whether it's politics or conflict or ecology or just arguments with the neighbors or black skin versus white skin or so many divisions in society that we have to struggle with, we desperately need equanimity. And it's a very, very powerful force for us to be steady and also to go out and make change in the world. So I'm going to be talking a lot about, about equanimity in my um, uh, a teaching tour in the United States. And you're doing this teaching tour. You, you have a new book out, uh, What's Beyond Mindfulness, Waking Up to This Precious Life. And I love the title, 
what's beyond mindfulness, partly because, you know, I don't know about Israel, but I assume it's similar. Mindfulness has just sort of swept through the United States. It's great on one level. It really, I think, is very helpful in terms of technique. But it does seem to have this limitation where it doesn't talk about, you know, liberation in the big sense. And, you know, what is beyond mindfulness? What is the the purpose of writing this book and, and coming out as you are, like on a tour and, and going out to, to yeah, speak to people? Uh, about? Absolutely. It is waking up. Waking um, up. I, I see mindfulness as the gate. And I'm asking people, are you ready to go through the gate into the garden? Um, I'm delighted that mindfulness is um, everywhere. I think it's uh, absolutely timely. It's taken the Buddhist teaching two and a half thousand years to get to us in the West, and uh, and we really need it. Uh, we really need it. Uh, and if it's come in the form of mindfulness, I just see this as the first wave. It's like um, there's an ocean out there, and the first ripple that is arriving in the Western culture is mindfulness. So I'm quite uh, okay with that. Uh, I know that there's abuse of it as well. It's being abused, but this is the nature of things that will be abused. Uh, we can't avoid that. That's the nature of life. Uh, but I'm very, very pleased that it's uh, so big in, in healthcare, in, the, in Israel, by the way, in half the prisons in the country, uh, in mo many, many, many of the schools, in every hospital, uh, you'll find mindfulness classes. Uh, my book, by the way, even though it goes way beyond mindfulness, and I assumed it wouldn't be really very popular, it was 18 weeks, a number one bestseller uh, in, in Israel in the category of instructional books. I was in quite a shock uh, when, I, uh, when I realized. Uh, so... Beyond mindfulness is an attitude of inner freedom in which we gradually begin to change the view, the view of us against them, the view of me in here and the world out there, the view that all life is, is about coping, struggling, getting things, having, uh, needing, and... Um, and comfort. So it's a really radical change in the view. So it really asks us to look at what's important. It asks us to investigate or inquire what is it that's meaningful in our life. It asks us to look at the big picture. What is genuine spirituality? Not belief in a just a God or a deity or even the Buddha or the, or, or the Messiah, but actually where in my life are windows to awakening. It asks us to look very, very carefully at what is our actual experience in this moment, whether it's on the cushion or off the cushion. Uh, it, asks, it asks us to ex expand our loving heart and not have a contracted heart that's busy with survival and self-interest. So all of these movements are in a way beyond uh, uh, mindfulness or mindfulness is the gateway and the, the here is the garden. The garden will have in it thorns and flowers and perfumes and everything out there. But we have to be in the garden and not just stand at the, outside the gate. Mm. You're the senior teacher of 
Tovana, and you have several thousand people who um, follow what you're teaching there. How are you introducing this to people in Israel as, um, you know, here you have, you have a Jewish state that's, you know, there's a huge secular population there, but still very committed to a sense of identity. And how, how are you introducing uh, sort of Theravadan Buddhism uh, as, an, as a complement to being Jewish and being a human in the world and yeah yeah it's a good yeah it's a good question firstly we have to remember that the buddha wasn't a buddhist and so we don't teach buddhism mm -hmm. we teach dharma and there is a really important difference between the two mm. and the dharma is the way uh, that things really are if you strip off the illusion and the dharma is deep spiritual practice now it's Buddhist inspired, indeed. We are inspired by the teachings of the of the uh, of the Dharma. And if people kind of ask us where we get our uh, lineage, we say for sure it's Theravada, it's the forest tradition, Achancha, and the teachers are coming out of that tradition. We're ready to you know acknowledge that, but we're pretty secular in the sense that we keep uh, we keep to the definition of Dharma and not uh, Buddhism. And uh, so we don't really have a lot of um, devotional practice. We don't have a big, uh, you know, Buddhist temples. We use a kibbutz with, with. I don't think we even have a statue of the Buddha in the front of, uh, in the front of our meditation hall. Uh, and a lot mm. of Jews, and even Orthodox Jews, and sometimes ultra-Orthodox Jews, come in to our retreats. And why? Because they really want to meet. They want to have a method which is not just reading books and studying old texts, but they really want a method of genuine spirituality. And so we always get uh, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but maybe five, ten percent of the people on our retreat are Orthodox Jews. Um, and uh, more than that, in my teaching, and even in the book, What's Beyond Mindfulness, I use the Bible. For example, uh, there's a chapter in the book on the on the biblical book of Jonah, Jonah and the whale, and I'm uh, I think you know many people know the story, and <laughs> uh, just in one word, um, Jonah was a prophet, uh, but he was afraid. He was told uh, by his inner voice to go to a certain uh, huge city and uh, liberate the people there, and he couldn't do it. He was afraid. So he went into a ship, he got depressed, he, he, he got in a way thrown over, he committed suicide, uh, and he was swallowed by the whale. At the bottom of the whale, if you read the book, it was deep meditation. He reached a point of zero in the darkness, at the bottom, bottom, bottom of the sea, of the ocean, in the belly of the whale, touching the earth, going back to the elements, from this place of, uh, you could call it, uh, a death and rebirth, he was able to come out and fulfill his mission. So he went through a deep, deep uh, meeting, which I think is so uh, classic to a meditation practice in which we touch our zero point, our samadhi, our deep quiet uh, inside, and then we get up from there and we know what to do in our, in our daily life. And so I use uh, stories from the Bible to illustrate Dharma themes and 
The reason is to allow Jewish people to feel at home and not feel it's a strange system, but it touches everybody as human beings. And if I was in England, I'd use British poets. And if I'm in America, I'll probably find uh, American uh, poets and American culture as models because we're, it's basically the human being under the sky we're talking about. We're not talking about identity. We're talking about the human being under the sky. Recently, someone was talking about suffering as sort of a key point for finding out who you were. And I'm wondering if you think that uh, Israel and Palestine hold a, a certain uh, role in the development of the Dharma, just given the the realities that that you know people are experiencing there, or if there's a particular way that the Dharma is being uh, developed and taught, uh, and that's particular from, you know, Burma or England or the United States. Relative to the size of the population, I think there's more people doing retreats in Israel than any other country. Uh, it's extraordinary that thousands, thousands of people are sitting retreats, not just classes of mindfulness, but retreats. Thousands more sit classes. That's in a population of six or seven million. The suffering in Israel does contribute to this because something interesting in the, in the, in the Dharma teaching, the, the Buddha somewhere said, if it, there's too much suffering, such as abject poverty, it's almost impossible to practice. If there's too little suffering, then you're in the comfort zone, you're back in the Buddha's palace, uh, you're in your comfort zone, and uh, you don't practice. So actually you need, the best form of suffering is a kind of middle road of suffering where you, you've got it a certain amount, but it's not too much and not too little. And I think that that's the situation out in the Middle East. There is daily life suffering. It's not hidden. It's out in the, it's out in the street and in people's lives and they're ready to talk about it and experience it and have it out there. And that's really, I think, helped the, uh, um, the authenticity of the Dharma uh, here in Israel. So, you know, every week we have new books on Dharma, on mindfulness, on Zen. Why write another book? Why is there something that you've, that sort of drew you to, to, <laughs> to writing another book about mindfulness and Dharma? Yeah, I think that um, we reached another stage in the arrival of the Dharma in the uh, Western world where it's now part of our culture. It's out in the street. And so we need new literature and new books to say, okay, Dharma has arrived. How do I look at my life from a Dharma perspective? Not from a perspective of having to think about Eastern teachings, but perspective of in my own life, the Dharma manifesting as I get up in the morning, go out to work and go to bed at night, What's the view of Dharma on my life? And I have a feeling that that does need new literature and new book books. Uh, to It's like a third wave, if you like, in the arrival of Dharma and in the literature of, uh, of the Dharma in the West. So the book is really about that. How does an awakened point of view work in my daily life in the West, in England, America, uh, Israel? Uh, Europe, how, how is it working? So I go, the book goes through many, many examples 
such as peacemaking, such as sickness, such as working life, uh, and then goes through what is awakening and how that might be a view with which we meet the moment-by-moment lived experience wherever we are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Stephen Folder encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by visiting stephenfolder.com, where he has a number of articles and videos available. If you read Hebrew, visit tovana.org.il to learn more about insight meditation opportunities in Israel. And please consider picking up a copy of his new book, What's Beyond Mindfulness, Waking Up to This Precious Life. He's doing a book tour in the United States this coming spring, 2019. You'll be able to find a list of all of the places he's speaking at stephenfolder.com. That's F-U-L-D-E-R. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes individual Kungan interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, it's bow, all one word. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.